Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, and neurorehab. Epilepsy affects 3 million adults and nearly 500,000 children in the United States. In 2018, the CDC reported that one out of every three adults with epilepsy hadn't seen a specialist in the prior year. Of the 90% who reported taking epilepsy medicines, 56% still experienced seizures. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the implications of medically intractable and uncontrolled seizures, and the indications, candidate selection, and latest technologies supporting epilepsy surgery. I'm your host, Alex Ray Grant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute, and I'm very pleased to have Dr. Imad Najim join me for today's conversation. Dr. Najim is director of Cleveland Clinic's Epilepsy Center and a staff neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Imad, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you very much. Let's start off by telling our listeners about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you train? And how did your career lead you to Cleveland Clinic? Well, I'm from Lebanon. I did uh, go to medical school in Beirut, in the French University. And then um, I got to Cleveland Clinic through Paris and Los Angeles, where I did uh, my training here at the Cleveland Clinic, both internship residency and my fellowship in clinical neurophysiology and epilepsy. And since 1997, I've been here on staff at the Cleveland Clinic Epilepsy Center and Department of Neurology. So today we're talking about indications and surgical advances in the treatment of epilepsy, but let's start with this kind of major concern, this staggering 56% of patients who have epilepsy but are still experiencing seizures. How, do, how does that factor into thinking about surgery for that population? Well, this data, as you mentioned, is really, really concerning. In the past, we thought that only one-third of patients with epilepsy they fail to respond to anti-epileptic medications. But this recent data from CDC from 2018 tells us that majority of patients with epilepsy, they continue to have seizures. Now, we know from the International League Against Epilepsy guideline in their definition of what we call pharmacoresistant epilepsy, that pharmacoresistant epilepsy, it's a failure of two or more anti-epileptic medications. Why is it so? Because it's very well known from the data from Kwan and Brody from 2000 that if a patient fails two or more anti-epileptic medications, the chances for this patient to become seizure-free permanently or for a long period of time is less than 5%. And this is exactly why when we fail two or more medications, we start to think about the possibility of other treatment options. And the first treatment option that we should think about, in particular for those patients with what we call focal or partial epilepsy, is epilepsy surgery. And epilepsy surgery, as we all know, it is not a new technique. It's not an experimental treatment modality. Epilepsy surgery has been used since the 1950s, and at least in this country, successfully since the mid-1970s. Now, epilepsy surgery in general, whenever it's indicated in the right patient, in the right setting, it does lead to permanent seizure freedom for anywhere between 50 and 60% of patients. And this is permanent seizure freedom with no 
relapse. So that's why whenever a patient fails two or more medications, we should think about the possibility of epilepsy surgery. So what do we need in order to think or to take a patient through the epilepsy surgery queue, so to say? First, we need to confirm that this patient has focal epilepsy. Second, we need to find out where these seizures are coming from. And here, in order to localize what we call the seizure onset or the epileptogenic zone, we have recourse to multiple tests. The most important one of which is video EEG monitoring. This is an admission, an inpatient admission to the epilepsy monitoring unit, whereas the patient's seizures are recorded, and we acquire both interictal and ictal EEG data. And this data is used to guide us through the process of where these seizures may be coming from, what area or areas in the brain these seizures are involving, and then to take all of this information, put it in context of other test results. This would include primarily an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging test, that with the highest definition possible, to look for a scar, a focal cortical dysplasia, hippocampal sclerosis, a vascular malformation, a tumor, or an area of encephalomalacia due to previous injury, for example. In addition to that, we may need to do PET scan, which basically what we call fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan or FDG PET scan, to look for areas of hypometabolism, decreased uptake of the sugar. And then at times we do other tests that include ictal spect to look at the increased perfusion during the seizure. And then at times we uh, may use, if we have available, uh, MEG magnetoencephalography to further identify the epileptic focus in this three-dimensional space. When we have all of these results, the next phase will be to have a discussion in what we call multidisciplinary patient management conference to identify the, those patients who are surgical candidate and those patients who may need to do further testing that may include some invasive evaluation and those patients who may be unfortunate not to be surgical candidates. Who else is involved in that? There's, you know, you said radiology and nuclear medicine, and obviously epileptology, but there's got to be other people involved in that management conference too. That is correct. In addition to the epileptologist, neuroradiologist, uh, nuclear medicine specialist, we have epilepsy neurosurgeons who are part of the patient management conference. We have uh, psychiatrists. We have neuropsychologist, we have bioethics specialist, and a group of nursing and support staff who have access to the social aspect of epilepsy and may give us some input about the possible social constraints or psychosocial constraints for the patient if they are to undergo the epilepsy surgery. It's really a team sport that you're playing. Absolutely. It's a team sport and it is basically a decision that is a group decision rather than one person's recommendation. Let's say you've determined a person is a candidate for surgery. What kinds of interventions are now available and how do you determine what's the most appropriate for that individual? Yes. The traditional type of epilepsy surgery is what we call resective slash disconnective surgery, where a focus is identified, uh, 
and the risks of the resection are assessed from a functional standpoint, and that area is removed. That is the traditional, most traditional type of epilepsy surgery. Now, more recently, there have been some surgeries done through what we call focal laser ablation. And uh, laser ablation could be quite successful if we are able to localize the epileptic focus and to define the extent, and hopefully it is a small focus rather than a three, four, five, six centimeter foci, which probably they become a little bit more difficult to burn or to ablate, so to say, with the laser probe. And in addition to that, there may be in the future something even less invasive way to do seizure focus ablation. This will include what we call HIFU or high-intensity focused ultrasound. This is, would be done for those deep lesions, we think, uh, although there are no trials that have been done there, but certainly there are now some centers they are starting to uh, use high-intensity focused ultrasound to ablate some very, very tiny, deep foci of epilepsy. Imad, beside the traditional epilepsy surgery, any other specific interventions that you'd like to mention to the audience? Yes, there are now three approved interventions in the United States. The first one that was approved in the late 1990s is called vagus nerve stimulation, which basically are VNS. VNS is an electrode wrapped around the vagus nerve in one side of the neck linked to a stimulator that is what we call an open loop type of stimulation. Periodically, every four and a half minutes, it sends over 30 seconds impulses to the uh, vagus nerve. VNS has been shown to decrease seizures by almost 50% in around 50% of the patients. With seizure freedom, unfortunately, is not as good, probably 5 to 10% of these patients. A more uh, recent neuromodulation technique is called RNS, or responsive neurostimulation. Uh, responsive neurostimulation is based on the fact that we have an electrode implanted in the brain, where it is as close as possible of the seizure onset. And then there is in that stimulator that is implanted in a part of the skull, a craniectomy, is like maybe one inch diameter, and the thickness of the skull embedded in the skull. And that device has three functions. The first function is to record the EEG. And the second function is to detect a seizure. And the third function is to send an electrical impulse when a seizure is detected. That's why it's called responsive neurostimulator. Now, same thing, almost same. 50% of patients, they have 50% decreased seizure. Maybe 10 to 15% of the patients will become seizure-free. And the last neuromodulation technique that has been approved in the United States, it was approved in 2018, it is deep brain stimulation, not very different to the DBS or deep brain stimulation techniques used in some forms of movement disorders. And uh, with this one, stimulating the anterior nucleus of the thalamus. Now, the indication for these patients who are not epilepsy surgery candidates and whose probably seizures are involving the limbic system. 
And uh, the results here we know from the trials, results is almost same, 50% decrease in 50% patients, maybe around 10% seizure freedom. Now, although these numbers are not earth shattering, but we have to know that in some patients, we really do not have other options. Medications fail, they are not traditional resective surgery candidates, these patients, we need to do something to decrease at least the number of seizures. But there is something interesting that recent data has been showing, either using VNS, DBS, or RNS, is the fact that, you know, with time, it seems like there is an increase in the percent of patients who are becoming either seizure-free or, more importantly, uh, decreasing patients whose seizures decrease with time. There is a neuromodulatory effect that we all hoped for, and it seemed like this recent data is quite suggestive of, giving us some hope that these techniques may be helpful in the long run. But certainly, we don't think at this time and point the indication for these techniques is as a first-line treatment. So medication remains first-line treatment, then traditional epilepsy surgery, then consider neuromodulation technologies. So let's talk a bit about results and outcomes. You mentioned sort of 50 to 60 percent seizure freedom. Is it vary depending on the approach that you use or the type of epilepsy? I mean, how do you think about that variability? Yes. Uh, you know, as we all know, epilepsy may affect any part of the brain. It is primarily a cortical disease, either the neocortex or the archicortex that is the hippocampus. And therefore, any pathology that affects the cortex or the hippocampus may lead to the formation of an epileptic focus. And based on the type of the pathology and the location of this pathology, we have different outcomes. Historically, the most successful type of epilepsy surgery has been thought to be hippocampal sclerosis or what we call mesial temporal lobe epilepsy due to hippocampal sclerosis. And um, in hippocampal sclerosis, the outcome could be as good as 60 to 70% of the patient who would become permanently seizure-free. Now, in addition to that, the patients who do extremely well are those patients with what we call congenital tumors, such as ganglioglioma and disembryoplastic neuroepithelial tumors, or DNETs, those patients with some uh, cavernous angiomas, and uh, some patients with very focal uh, lesions from a trauma, focal trauma, or due to a small stroke. Now, uh, more recently, over the last maybe 20 years now, there has been better identification of what we call focal cortical dysplasias. These are focal malformation of cortical development that affect any part of the brain, although they are most commonly, commonly seen either in the frontal lobe or the temporal lobe, and to lesser extent in the parietal lobe, and very rarely in the occipital lobe. Now, these, what we call FCDs, depends on the subtype. There are what we call FCDs type 1 and FCDs type 2. FCDs type 1 are less well-defined, and they typically have worse outcomes than type 2. A or 2B, which are much more focal, much better identified on MRI. And their outcome may be anywhere between 60 to 80 percent. 
And there is a very specific pathology called bottom of sulcus focal cortical dysplasia. These are very tiny lesions, maybe three, four, five, six millimeter in its uh, in diameter. They affect the depth of a particular sulcus, uh, affecting mainly the frontal lobe, either superior frontal sulcus or inferior frontal sulcus. These uh, malformations could be uh, resected very easily and very focally, leading to up to 90% success. As you mentioned success, I wondered how do you measure in your surgical population what, what's the follow-up and you know, how does that look? You know, after surgery, typically in our setting here at Cleveland Clinic, we see the patient uh, 10 days after surgery to remove the sutures. One month after surgery, typically to make sure from a functional standpoint, everything is well. And then we see them three months and six months after. Six months is the visit in which we get typically an MRI of the brain and we do an EEG, a two-hour outpatient EEG. And this EEG is very important because outcome studies showed that it could be quite predictive of the outcome. In particular, if an EEG at six months shows any interictal epileptic activity, there is a higher risk for later failures. Then after the six months, uh, we see them at one year after surgery and thereafter on a yearly basis, unless there is a seizure recurrence. Your practice has a very large clinical population of epilepsy surgery patients. Uh, I've heard numbers about 400 or so surgical interventions a year. Even so, it still sounds like epilepsy surgery is not being offered to as many people who could benefit from it. Can, can you speak to that? Is, that? is that so? And if so, why aren't more people being offered seizure surgery? Uh, yes, it's absolutely correct. The number of surgeries done in the United States is approximately close to 3,000 surgeries per year. And um, it is estimated, and this is a meta-analysis study that we just concluded here, that around 150,000 patients are surgical candidates in the United States alone. And in addition to that, it's estimated that we have another 15,000 patients per year who become seizure candidates, in addition to 150,000. So this data it's very sobering because it tells us that even in a country like United States where we have access to high-level medical resources, epilepsy surgery is not used to the extent it should be. Now, it is very important that to, for all of us to know that there are the side effects or the problems from seizures are not limited to the seizure per se. And the, you know, the seizure effect lead to injury, lead to disability, lead to fractures, lead to head injuries, bodily injuries, skin injuries. In addition to that, seizures that are not controlled, even one seizure per year or one seizure per five years, lead to a significant increase in what we call sudden unexplained death in epilepsy, or what's known as SUDEP. S-U-D-E-P. And SUDEP, the risk of SUDEP increases up to 15 times in those patients who have recurrent seizures, in particular those who suffer from generalized convulsive seizures. And data showed clearly 
that the only way we can eliminate the risk of sudden unexplained death in epilepsy is through a complete control of the seizures, not a partial control of seizures. That's why nowadays when we are asked, what is your goal in treating patients with epilepsy? And the answer is very simple, zero seizure. It's not like, oh, this patient has one seizure per month during nighttime, it's not disabling them. It may not be disabling them, but it's putting their life at risk and at any moment from what we call sudden and explained death. Let's move away from that for a moment. Are there any new tests or approaches to knowing who to treat uh, with surgery that you want to tell our audience about? Yes, I think one, one aspect of the evaluation of patients with pharmacoresistant epilepsy that we did not talk about is those patients who, after the first phase of the evaluation, they do not qualify to go straight for epilepsy surgery and or resection of a focus. And these patients may benefit from what we call an invasive evaluation. Now, in the past in the United States, we've done what we call subdural grid evaluation, where subdural electrodes are placed under the dura and after a craniotomy and the patient is taken to the epilepsy monitoring unit for another evaluation now with the electrodes on the brain. And beside this, over the last 10 years, since 2009, in this country we've been using what we call SEEG or stereoelectroencephalography. It's a French technique that has been used since 1959 in Europe, and mainly in France and Italy, and that we brought it here to this country in 2009. And this technique basically is using electrodes, what we call them depth electrodes, inserted through a tiny burr hole of three millimeter in diameter to be inserted in select areas in the brain. The advantage of this technique is less invasive because we don't do a big craniotomy. But there is another advantage, which is it provides us with a three-dimensional map of the brain because these electrodes, they don't sample only the surface of the brain, but they sample deeper structures. And they can sample the frontal lobe, parietal lobe, temporal lobe, if needed in the same patient. They could sample both sides, which was not available with the subdural grade technique. Now, invasive evaluation can lead to significant seizure freedom in a large number of patients. And for example, we have in our recent data, around 47% of patients will become seizure free after SEEG evaluation that result in surgical resection. Now, from a diagnostic standpoint, there are some techniques that are quite exciting. I think the technique is MEG, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, magnetoencephalography, which is a technique that we've been using here at the clinic since 2007. It does require a machine or a system that is quite expensive, but this system, what it does, it does measure the magnetic field surrounding the electricity in the brain. And by itself, it can give us a three-dimensional localization of the potential epileptic focus. And therefore, it could be very helpful, in particular those patients with what we call MRI-negative epilepsy, where there is no lesion that was identified on the MRI. 
In addition to that, and then now in the era of artificial intelligence or machine learning, we benefit quite a bit here from post-processing of the digital data that we have. Post-processing of the EEG data, what we call signal processing, to identify the foci of epileptic areas in some of these patients. And this is what we call, in particular for those patients with depth electrode, what we call the fingerprint of the epileptic area on signal processing of the brain waves. And then, in addition to that, we can do post-processing of the MRI and identifying lesions that you could not see on the naked eye. And typically we look at the non-homogeneity between the gray and white matter. A technique called, one of them is called voxel-based morphometry or VBM, which would basically take whatever MRI sequences we've been using, do the post-processing analysis, and in some situations could be up 20-30% of the patients may give us some information about a potentially epileptogenic area. So in addition to that, uh, we are using more and more what we call multi-modality co-registration. So typically, you have an MRI, you look at it, then you move your eyes to look at the PET scan, you move your eyes to look at ictospect, MEG, and so on. And uh, by doing so, there is a loss of the spatial resolution of our eyes. And uh, to remedy to that, now we are using what we call multimodality co-registration platforms to superimpose all of these tests on each other and see now the brain in a three-dimensional space and all of information from imaging, EEG in particular, depth EEG or invasive EEG, PET, SPECT, and MEG all together, giving us an idea where uh, these data, they converge in identifying the focus, and then they will help us in mapping or planning the location and extent of the resection. The surgeon will take this information, will feed it into any of their intraoperative navigation system and perform a very well-mapped and well-planned small resection, leading or optimizing, therefore, the results from an outcome standpoint. Before we sign off, any closing comments for members of the audience who face this challenge of treating people with uncontrolled seizures? Any advice for them? Well, this is something I try to remind myself of every day. First, we have to remember that epilepsy, when it's recognized, it could be treatable. Even though the latest data is sobering, about 56% of adult patients tend to not respond to medications, we still have 44% of them, they do respond to medications. Now, in those patients who do not respond to medications, we should never give up. First thing which we did not talk about is the fact that some patients who are labeled to have epilepsy may have what we call psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. So therefore, a video EEG evaluation in a epilepsy setting, in patient setting, would give us an opportunity to differentiate between those who have epilepsy versus those who don't have epilepsy. And then even amongst those who have epilepsy, it can separate those who have primary generalized epilepsy, which is they're not surgical candidates, from focal epilepsies, which could be uh, epilepsy surgery candidates. And we should remember that in these patients, epilepsy surgery uh, could be a very good 
option that could be successful in, as I mentioned, up to 60-70% of the patient overall uh, with minimal side effects and or comorbidities. And then why do we need to pursue uh, seizures to the last one, so to say? Because if we control seizures completely, we eliminate the risk of sudden and explained death. We have always to remember every patient or any patient with epilepsy whose seizures continue to happen is at risk of sudden and explained death that could be very tragic, affecting mainly younger patient population. But we can prevent this. And the way we can prevent it, identify epilepsy, identify these patients who are surgical candidates and pursue surgery in the right setting. Well, Ahmad, it sounds like you're not going to be out of business anytime soon. Unfortunately. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great discussion. Have a good day. Thank you. You as well. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org neuro, or follow us on Twitter at MD. all one word, that's at MD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.